1: Erlon, I will never forget it.
2: Ear Hustle, stories about life on the inside told by those who live it.
1: Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts.
3: From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Friday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Now coming up later in the program, Think about this. 32 percent of women leave STEM degree programs in college and only 30 percent of women who earn those bachelor's degrees in engineering are still working in the field 20 years later. Lots of questions. We'll talk about the reasons why. But we'll begin with this. George Governor Brian Kemp says more Georgians will soon be able to get COVID-19 vaccines.
0: Starting March 8th, we will expand the current 1A plus vaccination criteria to cover more high risk Georgians, including adults with intellectual or developmental disabilities and their caregivers, as well as the parents of children who have complex medical conditions. Additionally, I believe it is vitally important for more Georgians to return to normal. We must have every student back in the classroom five days a week, statewide. To ensure that happens as quickly as possible, effective March 8th, pre-K, K-12, public and private school teachers and faculty, and the Department of Early Care and Learning educators and staff will now be eligible for the vaccine.
3: Governor Kemp making that announcement at the state capitol yesterday. Now, Kemp added he does not plan to mandate Georgia schools return to in-class instruction, but he added he hopes expanded access to the vaccine motivates more districts to actually resume in-class instruction. Now, the rate of new daily coronavirus cases continues to increase. More than 2,200 new cases were reported yesterday. So now this brings Georgia's total to 812,612 Total coronavirus cases reported since last March. And at that current rate, the state will likely reach 15,000 recorded deaths this weekend. Right now at this hour, it's 14,989 Georgians who have died due to the virus. And as always, we get our information from the Georgia Department of Public Health. In other news from another department, the Georgia Department of Labor is reporting more than 25,000 first-time unemployment claims for last week. That's about a 1,000 fewer than a week before. But here's something else to keep in mind. Since the beginning of all this, when the pandemic, officials have processed over 4.4 million initial unemployment claims for here in Georgia. Now, to put this in perspective, think about this. That 4.4 million is more than the combined claims from 2011 to 2020. Those who worked in the hotel and restaurant industries continue to lead the unemployment claims here in Georgia. And finally, one of Atlanta's sports teams has been sold the Atlanta Dream have been sold, once owned by former Georgia Senator Kelly Loeffler. Atlanta's WNBA team will now be owned by Larry Gotzendiner. He's chairman of Northland, an industry leading national real estate firm. But there's more to this because this investor group also includes former Atlanta Dream star Renee Montgomery, as well as Northland president and CEO Susanna Abier. This is Closer Look. A closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. If you have been tested for COVID-19, more than likely you've taken the nasopharyngeal swab test. Say that 16 times. The swab has to pass through your nostril to the very back of the nasal cavity, and it can be very uncomfortable. Well, in response to that and also to help combat COVID-19, At the University of Georgia, scientists at UGA's Veterinary Diagnostic Laboratories recently adapted a saliva COVID-19 test. And join me now to talk more about this and some other news and information from UGA. I'm joined now by Dr. Susan Sanchez, Professor of Infectious Diseases at UGA. And she also heads the Microbiology and Molecular Biology in UGA's College of Veterinary Medicine Diagnostic Laboratory. Also, Dr. Jesse Hostetter, the Barry C. Harmon Professor, of Pathology in the College of Veterinary Medicine. Thank you both for taking time. I really appreciate it. Welcome. Thank
1: you for inviting us.
3: Let's begin here and I'll start with you, Dr. Sanchez. I'm curious, what kinds of research were you working on prior to COVID-19?
1: My main interest uh, of research is antimicrobial resistance. So those are my main areas. And also um, looking at new pathogens Uh, that affect uh, animals and cause disease. So those have been my my main um, areas of research uh, before working with COVID. Okay, and what about
3: you, Dr. Hostetter? What were you working on before all this COVID-19?
4: Well, uh, I'm the new department head for (laughs) uh, pathology, Mm -hmm. and uh, also I lead the the diagnostic lab. So I'd been here about eight months when this all started. So I was still getting settled into my new role here at UGA.
3: Mm. Let me stay with you for a moment, uh, Dr. Hostetter, because then all of a sudden, of course, the pandemic and we have all this. And now how much of what you all has changed because of COVID-19 in terms of research and any initiatives that you all were were working on? How much of your work has changed now?
4: Well, it certainly has taken a turn, and uh, I think both for for Dr. Sanchez and I. Uh, for me, it meant that we had to um, look at ways to make sure we are keeping our personnel and our students all safe, mm-hmm. and that we were trying as best as we could to to keep some of our functions going, uh, especially our diagnostic services that we rely on at UGA, but also uh, through the state of Georgia. So it was a it was a big t- t- curve in the road for us.
3: And you all are obviously so used to working so close to each other. Uh, Dr. Sanchez, what about precautions? You all had to shift. Is that easy to do in a setting like you all have? Because safety now is a priority.
1: That's correct. No, it was it was a challenge. That was one of our main challenges to work all together and safely, um, trying to stagger shifts whenever possible, uh, trying to keep distances, um, mapping on the ground, where six feet were from each working station, um, that that was I was pretty hard and uh, trying to work with COVID, which adds another dimension. Um, biosafety was uh, critical, so staff uh, learned how to use uh, respirators and uh, call them poppers, personal protective equipment, mm-hmm. when working. So that that was that was a, an interesting challenge, but we every, everybody in the team raised to it, and we did well.
3: You did well. Dr. Sanchez, let me stay with with you for a moment. Uh, did you have anyone who contracted the virus? Was everyone okay throughout this whole process?
1: Uh, everybody stayed safe through the whole process. We, we didn't have anybody going down with, with COVID-19 um, all through the, the year or even this year
3: and and Dr. Hostetter UGA obviously uh, being a research uh, university as well you all you mentioned things changed pretty quickly for you all take our listeners through what you all have been working on as it relates to COVID-19 and then Dr. Sanchez you can follow up as well
4: well specifically you know what we've been working on in the in the diagnostic setting is is the the testing for COVID-19 mm-hmm. And uh, we uh, we stood up a uh, you know with the university uh, stood up a testing site on our campus to test students, faculty, and staff. Uh, and so that's been that's been progressing since last August. Uh, we also have researchers here at the University of Georgia that are working actively on on COVID nineteen, and they're looking at a number of of different uh, really critical areas, things like you know, vaccination and uh, detection and immunity, uh, all of those all of those critical uh, areas.
3: Dr. Sanchez, what do you want to add to that?
1: Um, yes, um, we, here at, at UGA, we have lots of researchers. And in addition to some of these things that uh, um, Dr. Hostet has mentioned, we have a, a team in public health that are looking at switch uh, treatment water to look at um, uh, early uh, alerts on um, potential uh, infectious diseases, including COVID um, right now. And they, they, you know, like in other places, they believe that they can alert that the presence of the, the, the virus, or uh, high presence in the, in the community before actually we have cases in the community. So um, that's one of the efforts that is ongoing, uh, as well as trying to sequence uh, the uh, COVID-19 SARS-CoV-2 um, looking for variants.
3: Before we get into the um, saliva test, I want to just get you all, you all to focus and reflect on just your own thoughts on COVID-19, and, and from from the variants to now the vaccine. What do you make of just this whole journey for the entire world since last year, uh, Doctor Sanchez? You start.
1: Uh, it's been a very challenging um, journey, but all. Uh, researchers and everybody has moved towards a a resolution. Mm -hmm. Everybody has worked together like they never had before, sharing information, sharing data and sequences, which has allowed us to really start with diagnostic tests to know what the virus was. And uh, I still astonished the way that NIH worked with uh, um, private partner and created private partnerships to, uh the, to get the vaccine out there and it's now working in in, in even in better diagnostics so it is is unprecedented the way we have collaborated um both within UGA, within the state because we have worked with georgia tech georgia georgia state so we work together um through this pandemic but also the national uh, international level. So I think if anything come out of this is partnership and mm-hmm. research is not an individual thing, it's a team thing and uh, human health is, is priority.
3: Dr. Sanchez I want to follow up with this question. Were you, if they said you know what we think we can have this vaccine within a year and of course you all of, of all people know that it can sometimes take up to a decade What did you think when you start hearing that, okay, it's possible to have a vaccine within a a year? I mean, as a scientist, as a researcher, what went through your mind?
1: That that was going to be very, very hard, uh, without collaboration. I, I, um, I'm part of NIH, um, as, as a council member and, uh, I was privy to some of the information that NIH was working on these partnerships and, and they were very confident that they were going to be able to, to push this through and get a vaccine in a short period of time. So it was a, an effort from um, all federal agencies, including the FDA mm-hmm. and um, private, private and public partnerships. So that's what's made it all faster. It's not about one group, getting the leg ahead and making the profit is, is about all of us uh, trying to solve a big problem and issue.
3: Mm, indeed. Dr. Hostetter, let me get that first question to you. What do you make of all this as a researcher and scientist and someone? What's, your, what's been your takeaway from all of this?
4: Well, I would I would echo as Dr. Sanchez's comments. You know, this has been, you know, extremely difficult time, but it is somewhat amazing to see all of the levels of expertise and where each of those levels can fit in to to help with a plan, whether that's a new research program or a new new method of, of diagnostics. And, you know, from from multiple places the, the you know the IT departments, the the infectious disease departments, mm-hmm. um, engineering departments. You know, it's it it was really um, eye opening to see the level of support and interest and and enthusiasm for rolling up sleeves and and getting into and and tackling a problem.
3: And what about the notion that a, a vaccine could come within a year? When you started hearing that, what went through your mind?
4: Well, you know, two things. One, hope. Uh, at the time when we first heard that, it certainly was something that we wanted to hear, um, but two was concern that you know uh, I'm not my area is not vaccine development, but mm-hmm. I like you I know that it takes a long time, especially to get all of the approvals for safety and and efficacy. And so I I was I was hopeful, but I I wanted to just wait and see if this would really uh, pan out.
3: And I understand that UGA's Veterinary Diagnostic Laboratories played a major role in testing animals right here in Georgia for the virus. I'll let you start with that one. Uh, Dr. Hostetter, tell our listeners about that.
4: We started, uh, yes, testing animals for the virus. Now, these were high-risk animals uh, that either came from homes with uh, positive uh, owners or these animals were displaying symptoms of infection themselves. And so Mm -hmm. both our diagnostic labs here in Athens and in Tifton, Georgia, which is also affiliated with UGA, were testing animals. This wasn't a large number of animals, uh, but it was important uh, early, especially early on when we just really didn't understand how far the virus would reach into other species besides people.
3: And are we just talking about uh, the domestic animals like, you know, cats and dogs and, and maybe, you know, if someone owned a bird or something, or, or are we talking about livestock here?
4: Uh, here in our diagnostic labs, it was it was mainly cats and dogs. Um, across the nation, of course, there have been zoo animals, mm-hmm. uh, wildcats that have been tested as well, and I believe uh, primates have been tested.
3: And what have we been able to? You all been able to find out about this? And Dr. Sanchez, you can jump in there too as well.
4: With this I'll let research? Dr. Sanchez yeah. jump in on that.
3: Dr. Sanchez, what have you all been able to find in terms of COVID and, and animals?
1: Well, that is not. Um as common as we once thought it could be. And basically that animals are just a asymptomatic carrier if an owner has a lot of, um, shed a lot of virus. Mm-hmm. So it's not something really we should worry too much about, but definitely in certain species, um, like the large cats um, in, in zoo collections in, in, in not human primates is a, a problem, but likely those are confined and, and they're in a specific zoo collections. Um, so yeah, it's, it's not it's not a big deal. Uh, but it, we ne- we didn't know like Dr. Hostetter mentioned we didn't know anything about it earlier on in the in the, during the pandemic. So we wanted to be ready in case that was an issue, um, and that's that's part of the mission of the diagnostic labs to be mm-hmm. ready for uh, new and emerging diseases in uh, in in this. Uh, uh, bridge between human and animal, between human and animal health, uh, zoonosis uh, that can be transmitted. Uh, And we knew that uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2 was a zoonosis, Uh, so we wanted to make sure we put all the stops so we we knew that we, we can respond if the public needed us.
3: If you just join us, I'm joined by Dr. Susan Sanchez, and she's a professor of infectious diseases at UGA and also the head of the microbiology and molecular biology in the university's College of Veterinary Medicine Diagnostic Laboratory. And Dr. Jesse Holstetter, he's the Barry G. Harmon Professor of Pathology, also in the College of Veterinary Medicine. And executive director of the Tifton and Athens Veterinary Diagnostic Laboratories, y'all got a lot of titles there, but I'm sure it's for a very good reason. All right, let's get to this uh, COVID nineteen saliva test because let's be clear, we know the COVID test is important, but it can be uncomfortable. <laughs> so let's talk about how you all de- got to this point of of uh, saying, you know what, we're going to tweak this a little. How did all this come about?
4: Well, I guess I could start. You know, we uh, we wanted to make testing yeah. as 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 easy as possible. Mm-hmm. And when when this all started, uh, we began testing last August, you know, what what we had available to us was the NP swab, which you described it pretty accurately. Mm -hmm. Um, And there were some people that shied away from that. And so uh, we looked around at what other tests that were out there and the saliva test seemed very attractive to us just because it was something that might be be a little uh, friendlier to use mm-hmm. and uh, might we might get more people to come to the testing center if we if we went that route and it would be easier for them
3: so you had some folks who just wouldn't take it because it is just a little uncomfortable and look I can understand some folks saying look it's just I just can't do it so that was did you have a lot of folks that you did you start to notice you know what this is this is the reason why people don't want to get the test
4: I think there were some, I don't think it was a large number. Mm-hmm. I think there were people that would come and get the test. It's, it's not a long process and, and getting an MP swab, you know, you could get it done in under a couple of minutes. Uh, there were people who definitely avoided it, but there were people who couldn't take that test. And there are certain medications that people are on where they can't use a nasopharyngeal swab. And so that was a group of people we wanted to reach out to too, and to make sure that they were included in our, in this opportunity to get tested.
3: Can you take that further for our listeners who may not understand what do you mean? Folks who are not or unable
4: um, Sure. Blood thinners. Anyone who's taken an anticoagulant or a blood thinner uh-huh. um and has a risk for a nosebleed, there that's not a great idea to have yeah. an MP swab test done.
3: So how long did it take for I mean, you all just said, well look, let's just try the Saliva, and then it may sound simplistic because I know it's not. But then from that process, how long did it take to say, "Well, this is what we're going to do, and this is how we're going to do it," and to know that it would be effective in detecting the virus?
4: I'll answer the first part and turn that second part over to Dr. Sanchez because that's that's her area. We started, you know, we were looking around what our neighbors were looking, were doing, and other universities were doing, and the saliva test was. We saw that there was benefit for the re- reasons I mentioned, that it was easy on the person giving the, 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 the sample. Mm-hmm. We probably started talking about this probably in, the, in mid-fall, maybe October or even earlier. And, uh, you know, it took some time because there are some nuances and uh, we had to, one, make it safe. Uh, both safe for the person giving the test, but also the healthcare providers that are working in the area. So Mm -hmm. we didn't want, you know, risk of contamination and those kinds of things. We wanted that to be at a minimum. Um, And we wanted to make it so that we could safely collect the sample, seal it up and get it back to the lab without leakage and, and, and those kinds of problems. And so, you know, we started, we, we started thinking about this in the fall. We ran our first sample, uh, you by the holidays, and these were just a very low number of samples to mm-hmm. kind of, if you will, beta test the, 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 te- the, the new uh, sampling kit. Uh, and then we really ramped it, started ramping it up in, in early January, uh, all the time making continual changes and tweaks to our plan um, to, to make sure that it was working the best that it could. Dr. Sanchez, how effective is the test?
1: Um, very effective. We detect the same number of positives and the same number of negatives, which we tested side by side. And isofaryngeal swabs from the same person with saliva mm-hmm. swabs from the same person. So just trying to put together all the samples to be able to, to uh, validate the test uh, that we were going to be running um, took a little bit of time, as well as changing our workflows, because working with an NP swab is different than working with a saliva sample and how you process that sample mm-hmm. um, before the um, RNA extraction, the nucleic acid extraction. So uh, that, that took some time, but the validation, once we worked work out the workflows, the validation per se was probably only, took us uh, three or four weeks uh, once we had all the samples uh, together to, uh, to complete. And um, as Dr. Hostetter mentioned, uh, in, before the holidays, we ran several samples, just, just to get familiar, every time you change the workflow, um, and you're dealing with high throughput, large numbers, it becomes difficult. It, you have three or four samples, it's okay. But when you end up with 500 or 1,000 samples, uh, it becomes a little more complicated. And you want everybody to have the results um, as soon as possible. So our idea has always been to turn results within 24, 48 hours if we can.
3: That was my next question. So you're saying the results can be obtained in 24 to 48 hours?
1: Yes, maximum is 72 hours in some situations because some tests need to be repeated. But uh, right now with the saliva test and the way we process, uh, some results are obtained the same day. So we can really turn things around very quickly.
3: Dr. Sanchez, I imagine as a listener saying, well, that's great. So why aren't these readily available to the general public as the the nasal swab COVID test?
1: What do you think? I, that I am, I'm not certain why that is, but I think it has to do with um, potentially uh, with um, two things, saliva and processing it. Mm-hmm. And most of these samples, you, we get readily, so they get collected that day and they come to us that same very day. So we can process that sal- saliva sample very quickly. If you mm-hmm. have to ship or you have to move someplace else, um, um, th- that, that takes a tough t- factor. Uh, time is a big factor.
3: Dr. Hostetter now, you know, when it comes to college kids, you always got to somehow entice them to to come do these things. I know y'all gave out T-shirts. We did. <laughs> we did. It, did that get them? Did that get them coming in?
4: You know, it did. Um, we've given out T-shirts. We parked a uh, University of Georgia, parked a coffee truck out in front of the, the testing area so that uh, on their way out, uh, the participants could uh, get a hot cup of coffee. And uh, that has been, you know, we've seen an uptick in our our folks that are volunteering for the test. And so that's been useful. And this test, either one of you all can answer this. This
3: test was obviously adapted in-house and being conducted only on the campus. Uh, Is any plans to expand this maybe outside of UGA or to another, you know, University of System Georgia institution?
4: At this point, we don't have plans to move outside of UGA. We're we're trying to make sure that we can meet our need here with testing as many students, faculty, and staff as we can. We don't know down the road if that will change, uh, but that's where we are uh, right now.
3: As we wrap up, and Dr. Hostetter, I'll start with you in answering this question. Where do you hope we'll be maybe by the end of the summer or as we get toward the end of the year, where do you hope we'll be as a nation in terms of having COVID-19, obviously from mitigating the spread to having more folks vaccinated, just through your lens, where do you hope this nation will be by then?
4: Well, I truly hope that, you know, with vaccination uh, that we can, and, and, and all of our mitigation efforts, social distancing, mask that we can bring the incidents down and that we can start to achieve that level of, of immunity that we hope to with vaccination. And we can start taking steps back to normal again. It would sure be nice to to do some of the things that we all love to do um, and we have avoided because of the pandemic. It, it would be nice here at UGA to, to have that specter of, of fear and concern mm-hmm. begin to dissipate so that we can return Safely and without worry, back to our normal routine
3: and yeah, whatever normal will be, right? Dr. Sanchez, I'll yes. give you the last word. What do you think?
1: Thank you. I, I totally agree with Dr. Hostetter. Um, I, I just hope that uh, we have a better uptake on the vaccine and uh, that we really reach out to all the communities that need it and that uh, we make a great effort to increase the number of people that do get it, and then we. we Really, where we need to be, um, in 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 sense of uh, less hospitalizations, less deaths, and hopefully less incidents of disease, mm-hmm. and so we can resume life. But I don't see us uh, stopping wearing masks for a little while longer. Mm. Um, I'm afraid.
3: Right. Dr. Susan Sanchez, professor of infectious diseases at UGA and the head of the microbiology and molecular biology. UJA's College of Veterinary Medicine Diagnostic Laboratory, and Dr. Jesse Hosteller, the Barry G. Harmon Professor of Pathology in the College of Veterinary Medicine, and also Executive Director of the Tifton and Athens Veterinary Diagnostic Laboratories. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for what you all are doing. I have a suggestion now. You've got coffee and t-shirts. You throw some donuts in there, you might get the whole campus.
4: Excellent idea.
3: (laughs) We're going to take
4: that under consideration.
3: Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at CF
3: And closer look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Back in 2018, she was just a second grader attending Anzia Elementary School in Al out in San Diego. But little Samantha said this during her TEDx kids. Take a listen.
4: I'm passionate about engineering. Why? Well I just have a it's a great job for me. But did you know only 14% of engineering jobs are held by women? It's hard to do something without a role model. Can you imagine not having anybody in your life that you could look up to, ask questions, or inspire you to be? Women have a hard time finding the inspiration they need to accomplish their dreams of becoming an engineer. I, girls, women, need more role models to help us achieve our goals. Engineering is really, and I mean absolutely interesting. It's full of problem solving, hands-on fun,
3: There you go. Well, let's talk about what Samantha had to say. Also, this is Engineers Week, so join me now. First up, from Spelman College, Dr. Raquel Hill. She's the chair and professor in the Department of Computer and Information Sciences, and the faculty advisor for Spelman's championship-winning robotics team. Also, Dr. Crystal Walton, the Associate Dean of Research for the College of Engineering at Georgia Tech, and Christina Caldwell, professional engineer, educator, engineering consultant, and author. Thank you all for taking the time and happy Engineers Week.
2: Thank you for having us.
3: Thank you. Dr. Hill, let's start with you. Can you recall at what age when engineering you thought, you know what, this is going to be it for
5: me? You heard what little Samantha had to say when she was just in second grade. What about you? When did it hit you? I think that I didn't think about it from the perspective of being an engineer. Mm -hmm. I thought about it from the perspective of being a mathematician. Um, because I didn't know about engineering when I was in the second grade. I knew that I loved math. And so um, becoming a, a computer scientist became clear to me when I was a senior in high school and I took a, my first computer science um, programming course uh, mm-hmm. at my high school, which they currently don't have which anymore, which is very disappointing. Mm-hmm. So I said I saw computer programming as an extension of um, mathematics and the problem solving that I love to do uh, with mathematics. And I decided at that point that I would be a computer scientist um, because I saw the application of the math that I was using and that I was so excited and passionate about and math had been my favorite subject. And so at that point, I decided I would be a computer scientist, never having met a computer scientist, um, other than uh, taking the computer programming course that was taught by my math professor. Dr. Walton, what about you? We need to hit you.
6: Yeah, um, similar to Dr. Hill, I I actually never knew any engineers. I was a, a first generation college student. And I went to space camp when I was young and that was sort of my first thing that, well, actually I want to be an astronaut, but I was like, if I'm an engineer, maybe I can be an astronaut. Mm-hmm. And so then high, high school chemistry later is what really gave me the bug. And um, I just knew I wanted to pursue something related to chemistry that turned into chemical engineering by the time I was a senior. I really have my high school chemistry teacher to thank. Her husband was a chemical engineer wow. and that was sort of my my one connection to that. Yeah.
3: Christina Caldwell, what about you?
2: We need to hit you.
6: So it was probably, I
2: did a little bit of a switch. Um, When I was young, I really liked to build things. I liked Mm -hmm. to see how things worked. And it was everything from electronics. I successfully and unsuccessfully took things apart in my house. (laughs) And um, then I decided I liked to draw as well. So probably around seven or eight, I wanted to be an architect. So, on the road of, of being an architect, I learned about different people like Paul Williams mm-hmm. and um, very innovative um, designers that way. As I got into high school, though, I figured out architects are way more creative than I happen to be. I was very logical, very good at math. I wanted A plus B to equal C and no deviation. So since I figured out there was no um, not a lot of creativity I actually started asking around and actually in the Paul Williams story, he had gotten an architectural engineering degree. So Mm -hmm. that's the first time I had heard of that. And then someone else mentioned a counselor mentioned it. Like these ladies, I didn't know any architects. Um, There weren't any in my family. Um, No one to kind of bounce ideas off of. But Mm -hmm. once a counselor mentioned architectural engineer, I did a switch from wanting to be an architect to studying architectural engineering.
3: You know, all it takes is a simple Google of diversity in engineering. And, of course, a lot comes up. You get, why is diversity in engineering a major opportunity? We must increase diversity in the field of engineering, the importance of diversity in engineering. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had about this on our program. And and Dr. Uh, uh, Dr. Walton, I want to start with you. We're still having these conversations. We're still asking these same questions. People talk about, well, you need to start in as early as elementary school, access, role models, inc- increasing the pipeline. Is it still all these same issues that, we, that need to be tackled?
6: Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think that, you know, it is getting better. And I mean, research does show that if you don't have um, girls interested in science and math and STEM fields by the time they're, say, in middle school, then you've often lost them and you don't get get it back. So it's really important in those early years um, to get that. But I I think that, you know, as comparing now to when I was in college in the 90s, um, I do think that certain fields within engineering are making better inroads than others. So the the chemical engineering, biomedical, um, a lot of the environmental they have made better inroads to increasing, especially on the, the women, the side of getting more women in, but we, we still have a lot of work to do on
3: that. Dr. Hill, Dr. Rawls said there's still a lot of work to do. It's 2021. Uh, Can you assess the progress and then just add, okay, where is the issue then? Where do we begin to address this?
5: I, uh, yes, there's still a lot of work to do. I, I think about, you know, when I started and, um, one of the things I was I was blessed, and I say blessed because things happened by chance. I was blessed to go to Georgia Tech and um, have Dr. Andrea Lawrence as um, a graduate, a PhD student at the time, while I was an undergrad, and she was pursuing her PhD in computer science. And she was the first uh, African American to receive a PhD in computer science at Georgia, from Georgia Tech. And so I saw that happening and I saw the struggles and because it was a tight knit group of um, African-American and black PhD students and with the undergrads. And so just having, seeing that at the time I was an undergrad, I didn't realize that I would later go on and pursue a PhD, but you know, just to have that role model and she was the first African-American with a PhD in computer science that I knew and I saw her do it. And so when there is that role model is not there, um, it's hard to try to envision yourself in that role. And then I think one of the major um, challenges is not necessarily dealing with the academics and what is required, Mm -hmm. but all the social nuances and problems that you encounter that can set up roadblocks for a student. And so not only do we have to deal with the academics when you're a woman and when you are a woman of color, but you also have to deal with societal issues, you know, systemic um, uh, biases that are just ingrained in the culture and things of that nature. And so you have extra work to do, you know, that others may not have to do. And that creates, you know, uh, a major, stumbling block and roadblock for many.
3: Let me ask Christina Walton, excuse me, Christina Caldwell this then, based on what you just heard uh, Dr. Hill talk about, I'm sure that's not lost on you.
2: Um, Not at all. Dr. Hill hit the nail on the head. Um, That has been my experience as I've navigated the path of professional engineering licensure. So um, after I got my master's, I went into electrical was what I my chosen choice of field. Mm -hmm. And um, as you can imagine, there really are not a lot of people of color and especially women in electrical specifically. Mm -hmm. So I did early in my career meet one. But since her in over 13 years, I've not met another person that looks like me in the field. Um, And especially not many as I started to get into management um, and upper levels of of supervising other people. So it's definitely a lot of isms is what I like to call it (laughs) that I've had to face and overcome and figure out the best way to be an advocate for myself and not stand up for it while maintaining employment and not kind of ostracizing myself um, during those times.
3: Dr. Walton, have you had students who were feeling, um, I guess, feeling a certain kind of way about being in the program? Maybe you heard what, what Dr. Hill, you heard what uh, uh, Christina just had to say. Have you had students come to you and, and feel like they're alone? There's been some isolation at all, throughout your career at all. And could you under, could you understand what they were going through and how did you help them?
6: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I've, I've been a faculty member for almost 15 years. And I think, you know, so much comes to me, especially these days with students that are having both um, interpersonal issues and experiencing racism or sexism from their peers. Um, but occasionally, you know, they're experiencing it in the classroom. And these are, I always tell them, you know, they think they're overreacting, but you know, these things are nuanced now. Nobody's Mm going to come out. Usually you're not going to come right out and say, you don't belong here. Mm -hmm. It's, it's subtle and, you know, they feel crazy and it's all these microaggressions that, that add up. And so I think the best thing I can do is just, you know, give them an, an example of someone who is in it and provide that um, support for them and, and connect them with others if, if, if it needs to go beyond me, but, but I think just uh, providing that example and the support for people that are, are going through um, any kind of hard time, that's how you retain them and, and keep them in the field and encourage them to keep going. And
3: doing the research for this segment, and I, I came across a statistic that cited that, you know, there was 30 percent, 30%, I believe it said 30 percent of women who had majored in some engineering field 20 years later, they were not even working in the field. Uh, Dr. Hill, what do you make of that? Is that surprising at all?
5: I'm not surprised. I, I think that probably all of us on uh, this call right now would possibly say there's been some time in our career that we considered leaving it, and mm-hmm. um, so um, because of the those challenges that we've discussed, and and but it, I think it's our passion for you know the area that keeps us going. And then there's also, you know, when you're going through a challenge, somebody else is going to experience that same challenge. Mm -hmm. And so they're looking for us to persist. And so that when we're on the other side, we can reach back and we can actually be a guide for them. And so I I think, you know, those two things, you know, keep me problem solving. I still like to solve problems. I'm still, you know, very interested and excited about problem solving. And and also I know that I'm not just a computer scientist for Mm -hmm. me and because I like to solve problems, but I am a computer scientist for those who want to be computer scientists and but they don't know what it is and they don't see anyone else that looks like them. And so when they encounter, you know, me, I, you know, I become what I become for them, what they know that they can be. Christina
3: Caldwell for little Samantha that we heard, Coming into this segment, let's say in 20 years, where do you hope this industry will be? And I know when we talk about diversity and inclusion and equity, depending on who you ask. Everybody's got their own definition. I think I'm going to stop asking people to define diversity because you get all kind of different answers. But for someone like little Samantha in 20 years, what is your hope where this industry will be in terms of women in engineering? And not just women in engineering, because that's such a blanket statement, you know?
2: Yes, ma'am, I, and I agree. I, I hope that it's not something that she'll have to look for. Um, Samantha seems excited about the the industry because she likes it, but also, um, Dr. Hill made a good point. It, it's difficult when you don't see someone that looks like you um, while you're trying to do something. So I, I hope my hope is that she won't have to go searching for someone that she can relate to Mm -hmm. for mentorship. It can be a little bit um, overwhelming or you'll have a little bit of fear if you don't feel like you can connect on some level with someone you see as a mentor. Um, So I hope in 20 years that that is a non-factor for her, that she will see someone that that she can relate to and get the type of guidance and mentorship that will make her the best scientist, technologist, engineer, Mathematician that she
3: wants to be, and I think Samantha's going to be running something I trust me on that uh, Dr. Walden, what role responsibility <laughs> does institutions like Georgia Tech play in all of this through your lens?
6: Yeah, so I mean, I think so much of these issues we're discussing about representation it's it's the pipeline, so you know at Georgia Tech, we have about a third of our undergraduate engineering population about a third of them are women but the national average is more like 17%. So mm-hmm. we have to we have to partner with the K through 12 groups and you know how do we promote this to the younger ages and we can't wait till they're seniors it has to happen in middle school mm-hmm. and you have got to increase that pipeline because once we have closer to you know reflecting our population in our programs then that pipeline keeps feeding up to all the various levels. And then it does hopefully become something that you, as a woman or a person of color, you don't feel so othered when you enter these fields.
3: Dr. Hill, I want you to let our listeners know, as we begin to wrap up, who may not be familiar with that incredible spell spellbot team. I covered a, something from you all years ago, but the, ro- the robotics teams is just, it's amazing over there. So I'm gonna allow you to brag on them a little bit.
5: Well, I, I think it is an amazing uh, group of young women, and um, you know they're resilient and versatile. Uh, COVID uh, took us online, but we found ways to engage and interact. You know, even in a virtual setting. And so they're continuing uh, what they've done in the past and improving their skill set uh, virtually by using, um, you know, online platforms um, that allow them to use virtual robotic agents and, and hone their skills on sensing and uh, and having the robots do predictive uh Uh, movements and things of that nature. Uh, We're looking forward to the opportunity where we can be back in person so we can continue our engagement with K through 12 as um, dr. Walton has um, mentioned because because it is so very important mm-hmm. and so um, uh, the Spellbots team I am the faculty advisor but it is it, it is a student-led program and so they're actually doing a lot to keep the engagement going and I also I also want to say regarding like having a presence in students actually seeing someone that they can connect to, Mm -hmm. it is even when they don't see someone that looks like them. If those who are in the field will not just, uh, will have high expectations for those students actually performing, Mm-hmm. that is very key and not only provide mentorship but advocacy go before them and 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 create a path of success for them and advocate for them to have opportunities that others are offered but women and women of color are often not given i think that is just as important as having someone that looks like them you know in those roles
3: you just had some some Head shakes in agreement from Christina and Dr. Walton. Thank you both so much. Thank all three of you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Dr. Raquel Hill, the chair and professor in the Department of Computer and Information Sciences and a faculty advisor for Spellman's robotics team. Dr. Crystal Walton, the associate dean of research for the College of Engineering at Georgia Tech. And Christina Caldwell, professional engineer, educator, engineering consultant, and author. Thank you all for taking the time. Thank you all for what you've been doing for so many Young women and girls, keep doing it. I appreciate it. Thank, Thank you.
5: Thank you. Thank
3: you. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. If you missed any of today's program, it's always online at wabe.org slash And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. As well in our podcast, subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like because it will be there. So stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR